This is the broken open Divine Mother. This is what we're invited to inhabit and draw strength from in our approach to the suffering of the world. That first, before we, I like your word, lunge towards solutions, even if we're capable, even if we have the intellectual wherewithal to engineer some kind of fixes to these various conundrums, later, we'll do that later. What we have to do first, I believe, is take the suffering world into our arms. Lean close and listen, because it's not dead yet. <laughs> and, and I think we can avert ultimate disaster if we allow our hearts to open and lean in and listen. Welcome back to the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. Today I'm in conversation with Mirabai Starr, and she is an award-winning author of creative nonfiction and contemporary translations of sacred literature. She's taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico Taos for 20 years, and she now teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and interspiritual dialogue. And Mirabai has been a presenter at science and non-duality conferences over the years, and she's worked with us doing webinars and courses online in recent years. So we're excited to be reconnecting with Mirabai for this conversation on the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Here with Mirabai Star, the Sounds of Sand podcast. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for being with me, Michael. So, in preparing for this, I had the privilege of listening to many of your talks at Sand and also some other interviews that you've done in some of your writings. One metaphor that one often hears when we were talking about the great religions of the world so, Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and indigenous spiritual paths, that the metaphor is that they're like great rivers flowing into this ocean of spiritual oneness. And what I love about your teaching and your writing is how effortlessly and authentically you inhabit that ocean of non-dual spirituality. And I was wondering if you would mind speaking a bit about your path and how this, uh, how you came to inhabit this space of inter, uh, interdependent spirituality. Hmm, interdependent spirituality. I like that. You know, I'm always striving for a good term. You know, I love language. And so a good word or pairing of words to describe that confluence that you're speaking of with the world's wisdom traditions all 
coming together, arising from the same source and returning to the same source. And the word we often use is interspirituality, but I'm not satisfied with it. So interdependent spirituality is beautiful. And and I can hear your Buddhist background in that interdependence. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, you know, I had the great fortune of growing up this way. So I think a lot of people discover later in life that a single or singular spiritual path feels too exclusive for them. You know, say in the case of a lot of Americans, they grew up in a Christian or at least nominally Christian environment and realized in adulthood or late teens or something that that was too restrictive for what their hearts really yearned for and, and really know, you know, they, mm -hmm. our hearts know that the non-dual nature of, of reality, I think it's a, it's instinctive, intuitive, and it takes some of us longer to get there than others, perhaps. Although that sounds like an evolutionary trajectory, and I don't mean to make it sound that way. In other words, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being rooted in a single wisdom tradition. But for those of us who are inclined this way, and I do think it's a kind of spiritual temperament, um, we we kind of effortlessly reach for and discover the unity between the world's great spiritual traditions. So my parents were uh, non-religious, only somewhat secular Jews from New York. They were mm -hmm. Jewish through and through. Their grandparents were all immigrants from Russia. Um, but they really rejected religion. It wasn't just that they were non-religious, they were anti-religious. They were very much involved in the peace movement, especially around the Vietnam War in the 60s and 70s. And they felt that religion had been used historically and, and currently as a weapon to divide people and hurt people and oppress people. So I grew up with that sensibility. And so it was kind of embarrassing for me to be the kind of kid that was attracted to every single religion and spiritual path that I encountered. I mean, I never had the desire to become a true believer and, and devote myself exclusively to one path, but I definitely had a deep heart resonance with many spiritual traditions. Mm -hmm. And so we moved from New York when I was 11. Uh, we lived in the suburbs of Long Island and moved to the mountains of New Mexico. So it was a huge change. And we went from being middle class to being poor because my parents chose to live a life of voluntary simplicity and poverty, really. Um, growing our own food, making our own homes, everyone was building out of adobe and natural materials here in, in Taos, New Mexico, where I still live. And we lived communally. So we went from being a nuclear family to living with lots of other people. And we, the, the kids in our family all attended an alternative school that was, that was based in the arts and creativity and and mm -hmm. self-expression and self-exploration, you know, the, the philosophy of educating the whole child. What, mm -hmm. what got left out were certain academic basics that I then had to painfully make up for in college. <laughs> but mm -hmm. it was a really interesting education. And the thing about that school is that it was connected to Lama Foundation 
or it, ultimately it wasn't at first, but over the years, Lama Foundation took it over. Lama is the place, for those of you who are not familiar, where Ramdas created Be Here Now. Be Here Now, the iconic book of the, I think it came out in 1970 that really introduced 5,000 years of you know Vedic philosophy to a contemporary Western um, group of seekers, you know, who it was, it, even though it was rooted in Hinduism and secondarily in Buddhism, it was, it also drew on Jewish mysticism and Christian mysticism and Sufism and indigenous wisdom. So it was very much an interspiritual book, Be Here Now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, Lama was the place where Murshid Samuel Lewis created the dances of universal peace, or they used to be called Sufi dancing. So Murshid Sam was a great teacher of the meeting of the ways, he called it, of all the spiritual traditions. The dances of universal peace draw on mantras and sacred phrases from all the world's great religions and turn them into very simple group uh, dances that are really exalted and lift the heart. And so this was my training, you know, this all and all of these teachers came through Lama and through our school, from Choyam Trumpa Rinpoche to um, and Pema Chodron was one of our one of our teachers to elders wow. from the Taos Pueblo. Um, Natalie Goldberg was one of our teachers who taught the writing as a as, really as a Buddhist practice, and um, Ramdas of course and Haridas Baba and many iconic spiritual teachers, Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi came through. Oh, Thomas Keating, um, mm-hmm. Father Thomas. And so I was influenced at a young age by these great beings, these teachers and these teachings that all met in my heart in a in a very harmonious way. It was only in, a, in early adulthood that I even encountered people who thought there was only one path to awakening. Beautiful. That's such a, a lovely story of of your upbringing, and um, it's it's wonderful karma for you to to have experienced that childhood and for you to have uh, flowered into this beloved teacher and writer of these traditions. So, yeah. thank you, Michael. You mentioned um, a number of different traditions from religious traditions, and often we attach the word mysticism. To that, to kind of describe what you're ta- what you're talking about, this this oneness that Ramdas wrote about in "Be Here Now," and so I'm wondering what the, how that word resonates with you, mysticism, because I think we often see it as a label attached to religious traditions. But I'm just curious for you what that how that word resonates. Mm-hmm. You're singing my song just to ask that question, Michael. Um, <laughs> you know my not my last book, but one of my most recent books is called "Wild Mercy." Uh, living the fierce and tender wisdom of the women mystics. And the mystics have always been especially dear to me. You know, my first few books were all translations of the Spanish mystics, San Juan de la Cruz, St. John of the Cross, um, Santa Teresa de Avila, Teresa of Avila. And then later I translated Julian of Norwich from Middle English. She was a contemporary of Chaucer. Uh, actually the first woman to write in the English language um, to, to a contemporary, I hope, accessible English. 
And, and so the mystics have been very much part of my own path. I'm actually writing a book right now called Ordinary Mysticism. Oh, and the cool. sub, yeah, and the subtitle is Your Life as Holy Ground. Wow, and that's beautiful. Thank you. And mm -hmm. so in many ways I feel, and I'm actually realizing it as I'm speaking with you right now, Michael, in many ways I think I'm circling back to my parents' position of letting go of organized religion, not completely, but mostly, in favor of a more grounded, practical, everyday approach to spirit, such that the presence of that which our souls yearn for is right in the middle of our lives and not despite what's going on. So in other words, the, yeah. the challenges of being human are not obstacles to spiritual awakening, but the portals through which we wake up and more than that, step up to be instruments of peace in this world. So I think I'm letting go of my beloved mystics. I mean, they're always there. They're my spirit team. You know, they're, they're the ancestors that surround me and hold me and whisper in my ear for sure. Uh, but I'm not anymore use, using their frameworks to define my own spiritual path or what I share with others. Mm. But So what is mysticism? Maybe we should take a moment to define it, not that it can really <laughs> be defined mm. because it's, it's completely rooted in paradox. And as the Tao Te Ching says in the very first line of that great ancient Chinese indigenous wisdom scripture text, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. So any attempt to define mysticism is going to, by definition, <laughs> it, it's gonna um, not be true. But let's try to at least talk around it. Let's be the finger pointing at the moon for a moment. Mysticism is about direct connection with the sacred, unmediated through prescribed rituals or ordained authority figures, or even defined belief systems, right? It's, it's about having a naked, intimate encounter with the sacred. And these mystics of all the great religions and spiritual traditions that we, that we love, that so often spoke in poetry, because prosaic language, discursive language fails to describe utterly what it is that the mystics experienced, which is love melting into love. Um, they use poetry and in order to evoke that which they, they have experienced. And even though they were often rooted in a single religious tradition, because that was their the only way they could find to get to God or, or to have that, to cultivate that intimacy. Um, there it's, the mystical experience is not dependent on religious framework of any kind. In fact, I would go so far as to suggest that religion can be an obstacle to mystical experience. Mm -hmm. 
of the themes of this podcast series that is is uh, kind of unintentional, but um, is an exploration of what is meant by non-duality. And th- there's a sort of intro collage at the beginning of each episode, and Maurizio starts it off asking, what is non-duality? And I feel like this uh, podcast series has been a, an an exploration and a sort of expansion of what is meant by non-duality. So as you were saying that this sort of either or mentality of like, it's either all of the trappings of a religious or it's, you know, um, like the Zen style of, of only the present moment. It's a sort of, it's a, it's, it's a, a duality that we're creating and it doesn't have to be one or the other, but we have to be able to rest in that uncertain place where both are true. Exactly, Michael. And I wrote a a whole chapter about that in Wild Mercy, where it's neither that that the path of non-duality is neither some kind of amorphous oneness, nor is it all about the the trappings and and um, particulars of any any one philosophical system or religious framework. That it's it's a blending. In fact, I I accuse non people who uh, are practitioners or followers of non duality as being very dualistic sometimes because yeah. there's this built in kind of prejudice against devotional practices, for instance, right. because devotion is predicated on twoness, on self and God, say, or um, um, the subject object distinction of the lover and the beloved. But, but actually there's this beautiful flow between them because in a deeply devotional space or state, the heart opens that, that um, experience of unity unfolds in the depths of the devotional space and then lover and beloved merge. The subject-object distinction dissolves and the self flows in to the other such that there is no longer any otherness. And that we experience those moments, often fleeting, of non-dual, I don't want to say awareness, but reality, you know, of love. It's like the, the self becomes a drop of water that merges with the boundless ocean uh, of the beloved and only love remains. That's a non-dual experience, understanding. But later, when we return to our so-called individual consciousness, there is often a response of the heart that says, yes, that says, I want that again, that spiritual longing. And once again, we are two, but it's a, it's a complete flowing dance of two-ness and not <laughs> and not two-ness and i think that the feminine consciousness which lives in all of us it's an energy that lives in people of all genders mm-hmm. gets that that the distinction between non-dual and devotional say is a false distinction and that in, that we're able to walk a non-dual path in an embodied way and in, when i say embodied i mean actually remembering that we have bodies and they're beautiful and they count. They're not obstacles Mm -hmm. to be transcended. They're not problems to be solved, these bodies. Um, 
gifts to be embraced and that the sacred dwells right in the middle of it all. And also, not only does the body count, but that other bodies matter too. And the body of the earth is real and she's suffering. And that injustice isn't just a figment of our imaginations that we can transcend by having a big enough mind to do so, but rather these are realities in this relative world in which we find ourselves for a a nanosecond. You know, this life, this incarnation is quite fleeting and brief. And so while we're here, the curriculum seems to be to care for each other, to, in my ancestral tradition of Judaism, we call it tikkun olam, to repair the broken world. This is our, this is our calling. Wow. So eloquent. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you for that. Thank you. So I, I wanted to actually pick up on that last thread that you mentioned of that um, Judaic word of um, tikkun repairing. Olam. Yeah. T- tikkun olam, is that how you say it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you mentioned the the divine feminine too. And one thing that I've been hearing a lot uh, listening to speakers at Sand and other places is that it's almost like that that saying that um, you know you can't solve a problem with the same system that created it. And often when we think of environmental collapse and inequality and systemic racism, we're often looking for solutions, you know, before we actually experience the totality of what it is that we're what we're we're in in this present. Um, so I'm wondering how does that fit into what you were just talking about this um, this uh, not lunging or not uh, you know jumping to a solution before before it's actually felt what the issue what the problem is. Mm, thank you for that beautiful question. This is where the the sacred feminine can be a beautiful metaphor or model or perhaps reality, whatever that means, um, for navigating the pain that we experience around the climate collapse and systemic racism and injustice. So when we allow our hearts to open, when we allow our hearts to break, when we allow our hearts to break open, we are connecting with that sacred feminine energy, the divine mother who adores her children. And when they suffer, she suffers. You know, you can, to go back to your root tradition that you grew up with, Michael, and that so many people listening grew up with, Christianity, it's the Pieta, it's, it's Mary holding the broken, lifeless body of her beloved child. It's actually Mary, even before that, kneeling at the foot of the cross as her baby, her grown baby, suffered and ultimately died. And she bore witness, a mother bearing witness to the suffering and death of her child and then taking his body into her arms. This is the broken open divine mother. This is what we're invited 
to inhabit and draw strength from in our approach to the suffering of the world. That first, before we, I liked your word, lunge towards solutions, even if we're capable, even if we have the intellectual wherewithal to engineer some kind of fixes to these various conundrums, later, we'll do that later. What we have to do first, I believe, is take the suffering world into our arms. Mm. Lean close and listen, because it's not dead yet. <laughs> and, and I think we can avert ultimate disaster if we allow our hearts to open and lean in and listen. And moreover, we don't have to do it alone. That's the other thing about the sacred feminine is that it reminds us, unlike that masculine paradigm that we've all inherited, women, men, mm -hmm. people of all genders, that is all about the singular prophetic creature who has it all figured out and has come to earth to save us all. Mm -hmm. The feminine knows that we cannot do it alone. And I think that when we feel overwhelmed by the, by the problems of the world, and our own problems, it's partly because of this, this messaging that we've received that we have to do it all alone. And when we can remember that we're in this together, that we are interdependent, that there in the sense is only one of us to come back to the essential non-dual teaching, then we can take a breath and know that our companions are all around us, that each of us has a different um, offering to give in this world. Sometimes it takes a whole lifetime to figure out what ours is, but it's there. Jewish wisdom says we're each born with what is ours to do and be and give in this world imprinted on our souls. And so we have to uncover that sometimes through trial and error, right? And mm -hmm. through unconditioning, unknowing a lot of what we thought it it meant to be of service in this world and allow ourselves to really hear what is our prophetic call and then and then remember that we belong to each other and that together we will have the courage to feel the pain and allow it to transform us mm -hmm. yeah and that's that's the key there the the transformation yeah, and, and also this the um, the image that you that you conjured in that last section about um, Mother Mary holding the 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 body of Christ, which actually, um, as we're recording, that's tomorrow. That's celebrated in the Christian calendar mm -hmm. as the day Jesus was killed. Um, yeah. it, I'm thinking that metaphor. I'm thinking about it expanding, and and uh, as as Gaia, as our as our planet holding us as the broken, the broken child who's, uh, um, somewhat on a, on a course of self-destruction and, um, yeah, just our, we've, we've forgotten that we are the earth, you know, we're, we're here, we, we emerged from the earth and there is no separation, um, at an ecological, at a, you know, quantum physics level, but most importantly at a spiritual level that we are the earth and, the earth wants us to to thrive you know that's that's i think why our species emerged mm. 
That's so beautiful, Michael. I just, I will never forget this image of Gaia holding us, holding us. I love that. We belong to her. As a doorway to speak about grief and grieving, which uh, I sense is very integral into your work, um, your entire path as a, as a teacher, I wanted to ask about St. John of the Cross in your most recent book about the dark night of the soul um, and to maybe illuminate people, not to be uh, ironic, illuminate people about <laughs> darkness and the dark night of the soul. Mm. That that's perfect because I call the book Luminous Darkness and mm. St. John of the Cross definitely got the joke about mm. the darkness that is actually unutterable blinding radiance and how right. our path of maturing as spiritual beings is one of becoming accustomed to the, the direct perception of light. You know, that's what it, we talked about a mystical experience is one of direct encounter with the sacred. And John of the Cross describes that naked and intimate encounter as being one of, of radiant light that we're not yet used to. Our, our spiritual eyes haven't grown accustomed to perceive the light directly. And so we experience it as darkness at first. So it's perfect. Um, yeah. So I, I encountered John of the Cross when I was 20 and I was doing a semester abroad in Spain studying Spanish literature. And John of the Cross is the patron saint of poetry and the the most beloved saint of, of Spain. And he wrote most of his poetry or composed a lot of his poetry while imprisoned by his Carmelite brethren for his efforts to support Teresa of Avila in her reform movement of the of the Carmelite order really of the of the Catholic Church and return return to its original contemplative roots of silent silent prayer and mm -hmm. interior spiritual experience because they they felt that the church had completely drifted away from those mystical spiritual roots of, of direct inner experience of God, right? So he was he was young, he was 25 when he met Teresa of Avila, who was 56 at the time, and um, no, sorry, she was 52. And they together, she, she recruited him to help her in this reform movement, and he was punished by the mainstream Carmelites and thrown into prison for nine months. And during that time, as you can imagine, he 
plummeted into the depths of despair. And it was a tiny, he was in a tiny little room. It had been a latrine before. So it was this fetid, dank room that wasn't even big enough for him to lie down in. Had very tall walls with a with a window at the very top through which he eventually, after nine months, kind of miraculously escaped. But during that time, he it was like being it was like Jonah in the belly of the great fish. He just sort of disintegrated. And the way he kept himself sane was by composing poetry in his mind and committing it to memory. And so much of his body of work, the gorgeous um, co collection of mystical poems, which are many of which are kind of erotic love poems that never mention the word God or Jesus, <clears throat> or Christ, these all came out of this abject suffering and this radical unknowing, because in the depths of, of his deepest darkness in that cell, he could not know even if God was real and if, let alone if he was loved. In fact, he was told by the monks who would whisper through the the bars of his, or the, the door um, of his cell that Teresa of Avila had completely given up on him and forgotten him. And meanwhile, she was madly doing everything she could to, to get him um, released, including appealing to the King of Spain. But he didn't know that. At one point they told him, in fact, that she was dead and he had been completely forgotten. So he was tortured. Oh, and they would take him out once a day and flog him. Uh, while the monks were eating their noonday meal. So, and he ultimately died um, 20 years, 30 years later of a recurring infection from the, the lacerations that he suffered during that time. So this, talk about suffering. Um, and so when I encountered John of the Cross, he, it was as a poet. And I, at that time, I was already a Sufi. I had become a Sufi in around the age of 16. And I had encountered Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi, the great, the great Persian mystic, um, 13th century, who I have a feeling John of the Cross knew about because Spain in the 16th century was still very much steeped in the, the convivencia, the, the confluence of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that unfolded in Spain for, I don't know, 700 years before um, Ferdinand and Isabella made Catholicism this, the state religion and expelled all, all Jews and Muslims. And so I recognized that kind of Sufi heart, that heart of John of the Cross that was on fire with love for God. It reminded me so much of Rumi and I resonated. And so later, many years later, I was teaching philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico, teaching Dark Night of the Soul, which was my favorite text of John of the Cross in, in translation, a translation done in the 1930s by a Catholic priest. And my students were just bored to death. And a colleague said, why don't you translate it, Mirabai? You love language, you're fluent in Spanish, mm -hmm. um, you love this text. And, and so I, I did. And that started me on a path not only of deep love and friendship with John of the Cross, who was the ultimate non-dual teacher in many ways because his teaching was so much about merging into that which we love. 
you know, be loving so, so completely that all distinctions dissolve between lover and beloved. So John of the Cross understood that we could only know by unknowing. And that really spoke to me. Somehow I, from early on, like my early teens even, or mid-teens say, when I started my Buddhist meditation practice and got to know the nature of the mind, or at least my mind, um, there was something in me that I always understood that any concepts that I might come up with about ultimate reality would be limitations, would be somehow false. And so people think of the dark night of the soul, that phrase, as as only referring to having a difficult time, you know, painful experience. But for John of the Cross, it was really about um, deconstructing our spiritual and religious concepts are actually really, it was about God doing it for us, mm -hmm. taking away our spiritual attachments, actually, the way we think it's supposed to feel to have a religious experience, blissful, for instance. Yeah. So to peel away these attachments to spiritual feelings and spiritual concepts so that we're able to have a direct and naked encounter with reality. And so I translated this book I, it was very intense. It's a very um, rigorous teaching, and his language is is difficult in some ways. His prosaic language, you know, it was he wrote the the poem "Dark Night of the Soul," and then and then the nuns that he was a confessor for, a spiritual director of, asked him to elucidate the poem in ways that they could understand it as a metaphor for the spiritual journey. So he wrote this 200-page prose treatise that is one of the most powerful and precise spiritual teachings I've ever encountered. So I translated it. And the day that that book came out, that was the publication day, my 14-year-old daughter Jenny was killed in a car accident. And in that moment, I was plunged into that which I had been translating and, and also writing about in this book, Dark Night of the Soul, in the sense that I knew nothing. I could feel nothing except the fire of unbearable anguish. Mm. And it stripped me, that experience of losing Jenny, of everything of everything. And lo and behold, that stripped down state, when I allowed myself with great courage and tenderness to be present to the fire of my anguish, became a kind of portal to an intimacy with the sacred that I had never really experienced before. This was the luminous darkness that John of the Cross evokes in his poetry especially. Now, would I trade that for another minute to have my daughter in my arms and tell her I love her? Yes, a thousand times I have said yes. No spiritual realization or even ultimately a, a renewed capacity for an almost childlike wonder that entered my life through that 
broken open space would be worth the loss of my child. However, this is what is. I have lost her. She's not going to undie. And her death has granted me access to deeper compassion, yes, and also to, I don't know, an enlarged capacity for love and connection. Publishing of the book and your journey through the dark night of the soul and this, you know, this unspeakable tragedy where you were basically thrust into the dark night of the soul, um, and the only way through it, I guess, was surrender. Was this a window into into grief, or it, it, you know, into how grief is as, as a spiritual practice for you? Even though John of the Cross was not specifically referring to difficult painful human experiences as a dark night of the soul. Um, he was speaking much more about a private <clears throat> inner subjective reality where in a, in a dark night, all of our attachments to spiritual feelings and concepts kind of dry up and fall away. I discovered that my grief was actually a portal to that experience of being stripped of everything that stood between me and a direct encounter with the sacred, with the divine, with love itself. And so I re-evaluated my understanding of the dark night of the soul to in include having difficult, painful human experiences as beckonings, as invitations, as thresholds to that state of connectedness to the divine. Um, and so after Jenny died, I don't know, maybe six months later, I attended a grief group. And the person who was leading the grief group somehow recognized that I had a resonance with this work, you know, of, of working with people who 
had experienced great loss and he arranged for me to do a grief counseling training at um, a graduate school that that grants certificates in grief counseling and i did that program and then kind of eased into grief counseling but quickly discovered that i'm not a one on one on one kind of counselor that's not that's not my karma or dharma my dharma i should say uh, but rather working with with groups of of people who are specifically interested in that uh, aspect of grief that connects with our spiritual longings. And so over the years, and I've written many books since then, translations and also original books about the mystics, um, over the years, I have always emphasized in all my teachings online, in person, and in my books that that confluence of the fire of grief with the yearning of the spirit for union with the one. And they've always come together for me. But now, more and more, I'm, I am turning 62 this spring, and I've been on a spiritual path since I was 15. Uh, and it more and more, I'm experiencing the way that grief becomes a loving call into the wilderness of transformation. And also the way that transformation naturally unfolds into an impulse to be of service in this world. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a matter of being someone on a path of awakening who wakes up or someone on a path of grieving who steps across that threshold into a, a place of greater aliveness, yes, but also how that tender opening to spirit calls us to step into um, service, but not service in the sense of, I now have it all figured out and I'm gonna dispense my spiritual goodies to the rest of you poor slobs, but rather, when we grieve deeply, we can't help but recognize that that is the human condition, mm. that we all suffer and we take our rightful place in that web of interbeing. And so it's, it's a natural outflow of that felt recognition of interdependence yeah. to respond to the cries of the world, however, we can and however we're kind of built to to do that hmm. yeah and earlier you're talking about the divine feminine and this um this call for community and that's grieving you know that's that's when when grieving can be transformative is when it when it transitions from that deeply personal painful moment of loss or you know more than a moment often um into into, and it blossoms into community and that's where healing and you you become healed by grieving with other people and the people that are helping you grieve um, become healed themselves. It's so true, Michael. That's so beautifully said. And finally, after all these years of, 
of um, working in this space of the connection between grief and longing for the divine, let's say, to mm-hmm. distill it for a moment in that way, I've recently launched this community space mm-hmm. online just for that, for uh, grief as a spiritual path. And I could not believe the response. Thousands of people said, yes, that is true for me too. And I want to grieve in community. Mm-hmm. And so there is this kind of collective uh, desire to inhabit, not run away from our grief, but enter into the heart of that fire in community and allow it to transform us and and instill in us the capacity for walking with others. So I'm really moved by that because years ago, 20 years ago, when I started this work, people were so allergic to grief. It's like, please don't talk about that. It doesn't sell, it doesn't sell spots in the workshop. Yeah. And and there's a, there's such a spectrum of things that we can grieve. You know, it's not just losing loved ones, but it's loss of ourselves, of, of a younger version of ourselves. It's, the collective grief that we're feeling with environmental collapse, you know, forest fires and droughts and all of this, you know, it's, it's, it's very deeply rooted in our society right now. And, um, yeah, it's beautiful that you're offering this and we'll have a link in the show notes to, for people, how to connect with that. Um, if there's space, I don't know if it's like a limited space for these workshops, but. Yeah, it's, it's actually an online community and, um, it is, it's kind of a, every few months we'll do a new intake. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Nice. And I think also with sand, you're going to be doing uh, an event on grief uh, later in, uh, later in the year in the, in the fall, I think. Yes, that's right. Late yeah. fall. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, that'll be a way for people to connect, connect with you again uh, in the sand community. I know you've been a, a huge part of, of sand in the past. So it's been, lovely to speak with you today. And, um, I have to say when I do these episodes, often I'm, I'll make a note when, when someone says something really profound and I say, okay, I'll use that as a clip in the beginning of the show as like a, as like a teaser for the upcoming episode. Um, but everything you've said, I was like, oh, that, that's a good clip. That's a good clip. That's a good (laughs) clip. So thank you for, for being the, uh, the ocean of, of wisdom, the font of wisdom, just spilling out, um, in your words and in your teachings today. Thank you, Michael. What a joy to connect with you. All right, well, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you, too. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.